Have you ever sat down at the dinner table, looked down, and suddenly wondered where your silverware came from? Of course you haven't, but maybe you should. On this week's Footnoting History, we're going to dive in and discover the origins of one of the most prevalent makers of flatware in the United States, Oneida. Oneida started as a sex cult. Let's get busy. Hey, Footnoters, it's Josh, and guess what? We're about to embark on a tale of weird religious stuff. I'm sure you're very surprised. This two-part episode, however, has a twist. And as a result of that twist, this episode comes with a content warning. At some point in the episode, we're going to be talking about some rather sexually explicit material. Don't get me wrong, we'll do this very professionally, much to the disappointment of my inner 14-year-old, but it's coming. Or rather, it isn't. You'll see what I mean. That sexually explicit material, however, is only part of the discussion when it comes to the Oneida community. Now, of course, it's the most titillating part of the story of Oneida, but there's a lot more to it than just the sex. I mean, two years from now, my students will only remember the sex cult part of the story, but the story of this community runs a lot deeper. I, I guess I'm projecting here. When I first heard about the Oneida community, I was a TA for an American history class. And in that US history class, for which I TA'd, I listened with great excitement as the professor told us all about 19th century reform movements and utopian communities. And boy oh boy, it was all focused on the sex cult stuff when it came to Oneida. I just about fell out of my chair. And quite honestly, that's how I've talked about Oneida with my students too. It's memorable, it's shocking, and it makes history seem a little less boring to 19-year-olds who aren't the most excited about having to take another history class. But, really, Oneida is the story of idealism on the grandest level. It's a story that somehow fuses communism and capitalism in some fairly imaginative ways. It's a story about emergent theologies of the body and resurrection, it's the story about the social destructiveness of the market economy and the alienation caused by industrialization. In many ways, the story of Oneida is the story of the 19th century United States. Before we dive into the Oneidans themselves, though, we need to set up a bit of context. We need to make sure that we understand some fairly large simultaneous phenomena happening in the United States at the time. Namely, we need to make sure that we're well situated in the first industrial revolution, the market revolution, and the second great awakening. That's a lot, so we'll keep it as brief as possible. The first two, the industrial revolution and the market revolution, work together. Toward the end of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century, industrialism came to the United States, from Britain, of course. The United States now had factories and machinery that enabled businesses to produce a lot more products a lot more quickly. The spinning jenny, a large loom, 
is probably the most recognizable device in this instance. This advance in industry in the United States led to the creation of a brand new market economy in the US. Cotton, grown by enslaved people, traveled north to the burgeoning textile mills in the northern United States. Those textiles went either east or west. If they went east, they traveled across the Atlantic to European markets. If they went west, those textiles ended up in the Great Lakes region, linked by the Erie Canal. The Great Lakes territory sent wheat and meat down the Mississippi River, or back across the Erie Canal to the eastern U.S. The territorially vast United States now had an internal market. It's one of the main reasons that our country began its ascent in the international arena. But here's the thing about industrialization and the new market. It comes with social and economic consequences. These revolutions changed the nature of work in the United States. No longer did a person work for themselves. They worked for a wage paid by their employer. Gone was the dream of Thomas Jefferson, who imagined the United States as a land of small independent farmers living perfect lives of liberty. And naturally, such rapid change fuels anxieties in the social fabric of a country. And one of those changes, much to the disappointment of churches in the United States, was that church attendance had reached an all-time low. Church services seemed boring and out of touch to a lot of people. And who has time for church on Sunday when you work for 16 hours a day every other day of the week? So revival efforts began. And soon they coalesced into what historians call the Second Great Awakening. The Second Great Awakening is really complicated and requires an explanation that I wish we had more time for. But let's just say that perhaps the prevailing ethos of the Second Great Awakening and the Christianity that developed because of it was emotion. Much like the revivals of the First Great Awakening, the revivals of the Second Great Awakening were theatrical. Charles Finney, the most recognizable figure in this new wave of revivals, and someone who deserves his own episode, was captivating. But his message differed from the one delivered by the first Great Awakening preachers like Jonathan Edwards. Where Edwards preached that God had already determined who was going to hell and that there was nothing that anybody could do about it, Finney preached that salvation could be gained through doing the work of Christ here on earth. It's the classic free will versus determinism problem. Sorry, philosophers and theologians, if I made that too simple. Comment on the YouTube video with details for us. Tell me why I'm wrong. This message, that salvation could be achieved through doing the work of God on earth, fuels reform. And this is where things can get off the rails, because all it takes for a bunch of new religious movements to form is a cup of new theology mixed into a batter of social and economic anxiety. And if you season that batter in just the right way, you can get some pretty weird pancakes. I mean, 
religious movements, not pancakes. I'm sorry. I just love pancakes. Mmm, pancakes. And that's what we get in the 1830s and 1840s. A lot of new religious movements, not pancakes. We've talked about the Millerites before, but this is where we get Methodists, Baptists, and Mormons, and Shakers too. So who were these Oneidans, and what did they believe? What did they do? The story has to begin, of course, with their founder, John Humphrey Noyes. Noyes was born into a considerably wealthy family. His father John worked as a teacher, owned businesses, and even served in the House of Representatives. His mother, Polly, was also from a family with means. She was the aunt to President Rutherford B. Hayes. It's pretty wealthy. They lived in Brattleboro, Vermont, but later moved to Putney, Vermont. John Humphrey Noyes centered religion in his life after being captivated by that most famous voice of the Second Great Awakening, Charles Finney, who we talked about just a minute ago. Noyes liked what he heard at these revivals happening all over the Northeast. And of course, the reasons are fairly complicated, and we only have so much time. So let's just say that Noyes was incredibly sexually frustrated, and the revivals provided him release. Noyes, even at an early age, had a voracious sexual appetite. But... He didn't have so much luck with the ladies. He fought severe social anxiety and shyness. He thought he was horribly ugly, given his red hair and abundant freckles. He had a really strong self-loathing streak. At one point, he'd even sworn off marriage because he thought the business of it all was just too much to handle. John, bro, I get you. Footnoters? My 20s were something. Cue several hundred hours of emo music. Noise, by the time he had his conversion experience, had entered young adulthood and had enrolled at Dartmouth College. After graduating from Dartmouth, he enrolled in the United States' oldest seminary, Andover Theological Seminary. Noise had a short stay at Andover. He found that his colleagues at Andover, in his opinion, weren't spiritually serious enough. So he left, and he enrolled at Yale Theological Seminary instead. I bet Noyes would be thrilled to know that Andover and Yale are one and the same today. At Yale, Noyes found an environment better suited to his needs, but something kept pulling at him his strong sexual desire that he had tried so hard to put away. He felt buried by sin. He needed a way out, and he found it. Now, Noyes didn't immediately run away and found a community in which he could relieve all of his sexual desires. Initially, Noyes found salvation in a doctrine that had been working its way through some of the churches in New England. This doctrine is called perfectionism. Perfectionism essentially says that if you give up your will to God, you are free from all sin because everything you do is from God. God can't sin. It's God's will. 
therefore your action isn't sin. Clever. The idea of perfectionism wasn't really anything new. Several groups and people had practiced it in the past. For example, what we call the heresy of the free spirit, a loose collection of people in the Middle Ages who practiced several heterodox beliefs in the 13th and 14th century, believed in a sort of perfectionism. But talk about a free pass, man. Like, it doesn't take a complete skeptic to raise an eyebrow at this idea. Moreover, Noyes came to believe that the second coming of Christ and his 1,000-year reign wasn't something that was going to come in the future. It was something that had already happened. He's quite unlike William Miller in this way. Miller thought that all of this was yet to happen. Noyes believed it was in the past. If the second coming and the thousand-year reign had already happened, does this math add up? Noyes believed that the millennium, the thousand years, had started in 70 CE with the destruction of the second Jewish temple by the Romans. So what Noyes believed was that since the time of 1070 CE, a thousand years from 70 CE, the quote-unquote saints have been waiting for the visible world, our world, to merge with the heavenly realm. And now that Noyes had figured out perfectionism, it was time for the two worlds to become one. Always the sex with this guy. In any event, these new beliefs got Noyes kicked out of Yale. And not only did they kick him out, they took his minister's license too. Not that it mattered to Noyes, but that's what they did. Noyes only gained one follower out of this whole business. A woman called Abigail Merwin. Abigail would long be a fixture in Noyes' mind, and though she was his first follower, she eventually left Noyes and perfectionism behind. Also, she married another man, much to Noyes' great disappointment. That's not a William Miller pun. This is where Noyes starts to run off the rails. Noyes wrote to her and said, more or less, yeah, whatever, you and I will be married in heaven, so guess I'll see you there. In fact, Noyes always thought of Abigail as his spiritual wife. And when Abigail moved to Ithaca, New York, Noyes moved there too. Abigail, rightly, ignored him. But a standard had been set for Noyes. He now believed that, in heaven at least, all exclusiveness in relationships were banned and that he really had no rivalry with Abigail's husband because Noyes and Abigail were married too. Weird stuff. Noyes wrote all of this down in a letter that he sent to a friend, but that friend gave the letter to another friend and then that other friend happened to have a magazine and was also an advocate for Christian free love. And so he published Noyes' private letter. Oops. This was a disaster for Noyes. The people of Ithaca did not care for his ideas, and they stopped subscribing to the magazine that Noyes was publishing. That magazine was what was keeping him afloat. And so without subscribers, he was more or less ruined. But he was bailed out by a female admirer, 
Harriet Holton, who sent him $80 to pay off all of his debts. It may not sound like a whole lot, but $80 in 1838, according to the inflation calculator, is equivalent to about $3,100 today. It's still not that much. John and Harriet began a correspondence, and after about six months, Noyes proposed marriage to Harriet. Of course, Noyes insisted that their marriage fit the mold that he had created. So to use more modern language, John Noyes insisted on an open marriage, spiritually speaking for the time. John and Harriet soon moved back to Putney, Vermont, where John's family still lived. He converted a few of his siblings and then brought a couple of men into the movement through marriage to those sisters. He also started publishing a newsletter called The Witness on the printing press that he and his wife owned. This small group was soon joined by a new couple, George and Mary Cragen, who would be instrumental in growing the group. Together, they called themselves the Society of Inquiry and dedicated themselves to leading perfectionist lives. On this, they followed Noyes' lead. Noyes, like many of his time, struggled with the transition to the market economy and sought to shield himself and his followers from it. But for Noyes, this took an interesting turn. Of course, he preached selflessness, but that extended to more than just everyday behavior. Noyes came to believe that dividing into exclusive pairings, relationships, made human beings more selfish. Soon, Noyes extended this principle to the economic lives of the Society of Inquiry as well. If one was to live a life of complete selflessness, private property and individual bank accounts just wouldn't do. So this community shared everything in common in a bid to, in their minds, create how Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden. Okay, footnoters, it's time to buckle up because it's about to get weird. One of the things that set Noyes apart as a communitarian was the centrality of sex to his whole project. And no surprise here, right, given what we know about him. Noyes developed an elaborate theology of sex. And stay with me here for a minute. Remember, Noyes' apocalypticism was quite different. He believed that human beings needed to work in order to annex our world to God's heavenly kingdom. And instead of doing that through charity, fasting, praying, or pilgrimage, Noyes thought that sex was the answer. He believed that human beings were like a sort of spiritual battery, very in line with the new industrialism of the United States. And the more sex one had, the stronger the charge. And if enough people had enough sex and got big charges of this life force, humanity would achieve immortality and entrance into the kingdom of God. The two worlds would be joined. Interesting. At this point, Noise's group numbered less than a dozen. I, that's hardly enough to fill the charge of a sex battery, I think. And even still, the group needed to have more sex as it was. 
Enter what the Oneidans called complex marriage. Now, here's where things get a bit hilarious for me. George Cregan broached the subject first. He wrote a letter to Noyes' wife Harriet saying, essentially, I think you're hot and we should hook up. He put it more religiously than that, but you get the idea. So Harriet gave the letter to Noyes, but told him also that she was attracted to George Cregan. So Noyes called the couples together. And at this meeting, Harriet professed her love for George Cregan and vice versa. But also, Noyes and George's wife Mary Cregan also declared love for each other. So they were kind of spiritually engaged to each other at this point, but they agreed that sex would have to wait until the time was right and God gave them a sign. It wouldn't take long. Noyes and Mary Cragen were walking in the woods one day, and they wanted each other bad. I mean bad. But God hadn't given the signal just yet. But then Noyes was like, so what if God wanted us to initiate this action in order to show that we're ready to join heaven and earth? And Mary's probably like, oh yeah, yeah, that makes sense, man. Like, let's go tell Harriet and George. So... They return, and they call the couples together again, uh, and Noise gave his new revelation. Harriet, Noise's wife, and George Cragen were totally down with the new plan, and they all agreed that they were now married and the sex could begin. Soon the couples moved in with each other. They called this complex marriage, and it would soon become the standard practice in the Oneida community. I mean, it kind of sounds like a night at the improv, but it's consistent with their theology, I suppose. Eventually, the Noises and the Craigans and the rest of Noises' followers got run out of Putney, Vermont, and they settled in Oneida, New York. The reasons for why this happened are why you'd expect. Though Noise tried to faith heal some woman, he couldn't, she died. And the husband rightly came after noise. Once at Oneida, the community grew, and with it, so did the complexities of the marriages. And things got gross. It's unclear whether or not their practices included incestuous pairings. There's kind of a wink-wink, nod-nod in the historical record, but there aren't definitive answers either way. Also, Noise, and therefore the community, believed that a girl should enter the quote-unquote social life of the community, that means start having sex with the other members, when she turned 13. And Noise thought it proper to introduce these 13-year-old girls to the practice himself. Yeah, I want to vomit too. So there's all this sex happening. Nobody's using any kind of birth control. And, of course, it says in the Bible that wasting a man's seed is a sin. It's called the sin of Onan, and I'll let you look it up. So, you would think that there would be a lot of pregnancy in the Oneida community. But nope. And that's because the Oneidans practiced what they called male continence. Male continence is quite simple. Men were not supposed to achieve orgasm and ejaculate during sex. 
But how, every male listener shouts into the air at this very moment. Well, in the words of the great philosopher, 76ers star Allen Iverson once said, practice. We talking about practice. The Oneidans had a strategy for this. Young men who became of age to have sex with the rest of the community needed to practice having sex without orgasm. So they were often paired with postmenopausal women who could no longer get pregnant until the young men had proven that they could, in fact, have sex without ejaculating. Once they did, they could begin having sex with younger members of the community. But, of course, this meant that the older men had sexual access to teenage girls and younger women. It's not a pretty picture if you stop and think about it for a couple of seconds. And they were really serious about the no-exclusive relationships thing, or what they called sticky love. Uh, yeah, I know. If members got too attached to each other, they'd be separated from each other until they could let go of their attachments. It wasn't all sex in Oneida, however. The group needed to bring in money in order to sustain their community. Where they made their money was in trap making. And to their credit, they followed some pretty progressive labor practices. In fact, at first, they refused to tap into the wage labor market brought on by the Industrial Revolution. Though, they turned to wage laborers when their business had grown considerably. We'll talk more about that in two weeks when we conclude the story of Oneida. I'm excited to get into the weeds a bit more with you then. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Footnoting History. Don't forget to head over to footnotinghistory.com for visuals, links, and sources related to the Oneida community. Don't forget that all of our episodes are now on YouTube, complete with closed captions. Please go visit our channel, like our videos, and subscribe if you love it. If you'd like to interact with us, we're on Twitter as at History Footnote, or Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest as at Footnoting History. We'd love to hear from you, and remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. <laughs>